The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Okay, how many of you have taken some sort of a trip during this past year? Raise your hands. Okay, hands down. For how many of you, uh, how many of you took a car trip? It was a car trip. Right? It's actually my least favorite way to travel because I always get lost. Okay, hands down. Okay, how about any of you take a train trip? Anybody take a train? Anybody by train? I've never done that, but yeah, it seems like it could be interesting. Okay. Um, how about a plane trip? Anybody a plane trip? My favorite way to travel. Right? I just had a couple of plane trips. Okay, how about a guilt trip? Anybody take a guilt trip this past year? Right, so today we are in the second week of our series. We're talking about the subject of forgiveness, talking about forgiven. And the question I want us to think about today and I want to talk about with you today is this question right here. How do I resolve my sin? And see, the truth is that's a big question, isn't it? And every single one of us at some way and some type of situation in our own lives, we have wrestled with this question. You may not have wrestled with it in these exact terms before, but you've wrestled with this, right? You've thought about this. And see, the interesting thing is, is that for many of us, right, probably not all of us, but probably many of us, probably many of us, we grew up being told as children that we should pray and we should ask God to forgive us of our sin, right? But when you're a kid, right, you, don't even, you don't even know what this is, right? And besides, when you're kids, like, what, what did you even really do anyway? I mean, I went into my sister's room and I messed with her toys, right? So pray to God and ask God to forgive you. Okay, God, forgive me for messing with my sister's toys. But as you get older, these get bigger, right? And then there's shame. Then there's guilt, There's whole seasons of our lives that we wish we could go back and unlive or or, or relive or or redo somehow. And you hope that nobody even asks you about your first marriage. You hope that when the subject of college comes up, you can just simply say, okay, I went. That's all I want to say about that. I went. And then there's that situation at work. There's that situation with the money. There's that situation with your boss. Right? And then even if there aren't any of those things in your life, it's all those little things that you look back on that you wish that you would have done, that you should have done. And all those little things, they begin to pile up and they condemn us as well. I mean, guilt and shame, those aren't religious things. They just are. Right? What can resolve my sin? What can resolve my guilt? What can resolve my shame? And so we do all kinds of things to try to deal with this, don't we? We try to just not think about it. And then all of a sudden, a name, you hear a name and it all comes back up again. Or you drive down a street and it all comes back up again. Right? Some of us, we try to drink it away. We, we try to medicate it away. Right? And it works for, for a little while. For some of us, we, we, we try to just work harder, right? Because there's this sense of, okay, there's got to be something that I can do to just make this all go away or at least make it so that when I think about it, it, it doesn't bother me anymore, which is so interesting, isn't it? I mean, isn't it interesting how there's some things that you do in your life that you regret, but then you, later on you can look back on them and laugh at them? Right? It's the whole situation, someone's telling their story and, and they, they're talking about themselves and you say, well, that's nothing because one time I, right, that whole thing. And yet this truth is for some of us, for many of us, probably for all of us, there's certain things in, the, in our past that we look back on and they're just never going to be funny. 
right? They're just always embarrassing. And it's like we, we carry them around with us wherever we go. It's like a cloud. It's like a fog. It's almost like a shadow that just never leaves us. And so then what we do is we try to bury all these things in the great big sea of, well, listen, nobody's perfect. And see, because nobody's perfect and I'm not perfect, that means I'm fine. Right? I'm fine. And you tell yourself that. And you say things like, well, listen, I was young. I was angry. I was drunk. I was lonely. I was broke. I mean, what would you expect me to do? Come on, what, what, what was I supposed to do? And all of that's true. But see, even acknowledging it and embracing it, that doesn't resolve it, does it? And it's not every day. And it's not like it's every moment of every day. I mean, what, if anything, right, can resolve my sin, my guilt, my shame. And see, at the core of that struggle, right, as you drill down deep and you try to figure out what's really going on and is there a faith component to all this, at the core of your struggle, the core issue, it really is an issue of forgiveness. And see, maybe, again, you haven't thought about it in these terms before, but, but what you're trying to figure out is, is there a way in which I can so forgive myself that once I forgive myself, it's done, right? It's over. It, it's resolved. So that if ever or whenever it comes back up again, whenever I think about it, whenever I see her or I see him or, or I drive past that billboard or I end up on that website or whatever it might be, that I can just say, oh, no, 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 it's over. This is done. This is forgiven. This is resolved, and see, a big part of this struggle and why this is so emotional and so difficult for us to get through is because the truth is there is a sense of indebtedness to ourselves that all of these things create. Because it's like, okay, I, I, I owed it to, to myself to actually be a better parent, right? I should have never said those things to my daughter. Now, I owed it to myself to, to never say those kinds of words to, to my son. Right? I owed it to myself to be faithful to, to my first husband. I owed it to myself to be faithful to my first wife. In fact, I didn't even owe it to them. I, I owed it to me. Right? I owed it to me to actually be a better person. I actually owed it to myself to have more character than that. And so if there was something maybe that I could do to pay myself back, then maybe I could resolve and get rid of whatever this shame is, whatever this feeling is that I have. And if that wasn't hard enough, and then you throw in this confusion, and we've talked about this before, right? Am I a mistaker or am I a sinner? Right? And see, the truth is, it's in this context as we talk about the subject of forgiveness where this distinction is, in fact, the most important. Because, and I get it, this sounds so religious. And so the temptation for all of us is to say, well, listen, I, when I was young, I just made some mistakes. Right? I made some mistakes in my previous marriage. I made some mistakes with my kids. I made some mistakes in my previous career. But see, the problem is, is we all know what you do with a mistake. Right? You get out the eraser and you correct it. And you can't correct these. Which in your heart you know means that they are bigger than a mistake. Right? A mistake is always the result of incorrect information or a lack of information. And, and these things are bigger than just that. But see, here's the problem. 
Right? If all of that stuff in your past, if all of that guilt and all of that shame, right, if all of that is in fact sin, then th- this is a big deal. Because that means that you have to own it. Right? And when you own it, you actually feel worse. And so round and round and round the whole thing goes. And where it ends up stopping, nobody knows. And so really, I mean really, come on, what can really resolve my sin, my guilt, and my shame? And see, maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking to yourself, okay, Joe, you better not give me some kind of a a simplistic answer to this whole thing. And I'm not. I'm not. This is a big, big deal. And see, if we were to stop right here, the truth is, religious or not, whatever your background is or is not, the truth is every single one of us have lived long enough to wonder, okay, is there really a way to resolve my sin? Because, listen, I know what I'm going to do going forward, right? Because I'm just not going to do that anymore. But no amount of not doing that anymore in my future is going to make up for what it is that I've done in my past because I can't go back and relive it or unlive it or undo it. And see, here's something that's staggering, and maybe you've heard a version of this before, so maybe this won't be a new thought for you. But this is one of those, you know, is that even, I mean, could that possibly even? really be true. I mean, it's, it's just one of those kind of a thoughts. See, the truth is, in every religious system, in every faith system, in every piece of literature that's been written on the subject of faith, whether it's ancient or modern, every single one of them, they offer a solution to this problem. But there's only ever been one person who's offered himself as the solution. Right? Every single religious system says, okay, here's how you deal with your past, here's how you deal with your shame, here's how you deal with your guilt, here's what you need to do moving forward, here's how you deal with all of that. But in the history of humanity, right, this is a staggering thought, there's only ever been one person who has stepped forward and said, I don't simply have a solution, I am the solution. Now, whoever would dare say such a thing is either insane or they are somebody that perhaps we should pay attention to. Take out your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of John, which is on page 1,646 if you're using one of those Bibles in the seat back in front of you today. Now, the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' 12 followers, and it's in the very beginning of John's letter, um, his Gospel, that he, in fact, introduces us to another man named John, and this John's name was John the Baptist. And the reason he was John the Baptist wasn't because he wasn't John the Presbyterian. Right? You get it. Yeah. It'll, you'll get it. Um, but his name, he was John the Baptist because he had done something that nobody had ever done before. Because back in the ancient world, in the Jewish world, in the first century, if somebody wanted to become Jewish, they would go through a particular ceremony. And part of that ceremony included a special meal, but it also included a ceremonial washing where you would wash away your Gentileness and you would put on Jewishness to the best of your ability, right, even though you weren't born as an Israelite. And so that whole idea wasn't new. But what was new is that they had never seen somebody take other people and baptize them before. Normally, this was something that you would just do for yourself. But this guy, he was actually taking hold of other people and baptizing them. right? And so consequently, 
People from all over the place, they came down to the Jordan River to see what this guy John the Baptist was actually doing, to hear what it is that he was saying, and to see what it is that he was up to. In fact, Mark tells us in his gospel that the whole Judean countryside actually came out to see him, right? So here's the picture. It's not just a couple of dozen people. It's hundreds and likely thousands and thousands of people who are crowding into the Jordan River Valley, piling into this one area to see this guy, John the Baptist, Now, all four Gospels tell us about John the Baptist. Josephus, who is an ancient Jewish historian, wrote about 70 AD, he tells us about John the Baptist. Even Muhammad in the Quran, he tells us about John the Baptist. And all of them, they write in almost identical terms to how the New Testament authors describe this guy. So he's like a real guy. And he was so compelling Right, that people came from everywhere and they thought, okay, maybe the Messiah has finally shown up. In fact, even the religious leaders, they thought maybe the Messiah is finally here because no one in our lifetime has ever drawn a crowd as big as this guy. So even the Pharisees, they go out to see him and to listen to him and they say to him, okay, who are you? I mean, who in the world are you? And so John looks at them and he responds to them in verse 26 and he says, I baptize with water... But among you stands one you do not know. Right? Now maybe he meant, you know, literally. Like he, he's right over here. But you don't even recognize him. You don't even see him. I mean, there's thousands of people all over the place and he's right over there and, and you don't even know who he is. Verse 27, he is the one, John said, who comes after me, the throng of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In other words, John's saying, okay, listen, you think I'm something? Right? You think I know how to draw a crowd? You you think that I've got something to say? I'm telling you, there is someone coming after me, and I am not even worthy to be his servant. And then the next day, Right? The very next day, there's still thousands of people everywhere. John stops what he's doing, and he says to everybody, he says, look. Hey, everybody, look. Hey, kids, kids, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Look. Hey, everyone, I know, I know that you're all looking at me right now, but listen, look. Look, the Lamb of God. Right? Now, now, the interesting thing is that in the Greek language, there is no of in this sentence. And so literally, it's just the lamb God has sent. Right? Look, everyone. God has sent a lamb. Look, God has done something. What has God done? God has sent a lamb. And see, for us, it's like, okay. But see, for these people, this was absolutely amazing because for 15 1,500 years, these people had been sacrificing lambs. They would take the blood of a lamb and they would offer that as a sacrifice. And that sacrifice, it would atone for their sin. But see, these were smart people. And they knew, right? They knew that there was no way that the blood of an animal, a dead animal, can atone for a live person. Right? It does not matter how many animals that you kill, the blood of an animal is never the equivalent of a person. But see, for 1,500 years, they had a tradition that said that when somebody sins, something has to die. 
When somebody sins, somebody has to pay for that. Because, see, in their world, it was an eye for an eye and it was a tooth for a tooth. And I'm not saying that you should think this way. I'm just telling you the way that they thought. Which was that since God isn't going to slay all of us for all of our sin, what we're going to do is is we're going to sacrifice an animal. And by saying that, what we're doing is we're saying to God, listen, we understand that we deserve to die for our sin because you are a holy God. And God, we are thankful that you have allowed us to offer the life of this animal instead of our own lives because you are a holy God. Right? That's the way that they thought. But they knew. Right? They knew. The blood of an animal to somehow cover the sin of a person? I mean, it's a nice system. Right? But it's never going to get the job done. Look. God has sent a lamb. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away. God has sent a Lamb who takes away, literally who lifts up and who carries off. God has sent a Lamb. And what is this Lamb going to do? He's going to lift up and he's going to carry off. Look, God has sent a Lamb. And let me tell you about this Lamb. He is going to lift up and he's going to carry off the sin of the world. The whole world, Jewish sin, Roman sin, American sin, your sin, my sin. And see, when John said this, they had no idea what he was talking about. Look, God sent a lamb, and this lamb is going to carry off. He's going to lift up and carry off the sin of the whole world. And everyone was like, okay. That's interesting. And then Jesus would spend the next three years of his life traveling throughout Jerusalem. And everywhere that he would go, he kind of left these little hints. He left this little trail about what was to come. One day, someday. And it wasn't simply about a big crowd, and it wasn't simply about good teaching. It was, it was just as John said. And then one night, Jesus gathered his 12 closest friends together for what would be their last Passover meal. But, and it's hard for us non-Jewish people to actually get our, our minds around this. But it was in the middle of that Passover celebration that Jesus said the most offensive thing. I, I mean, we can't even imagine how offensive this was. They should have stoned him for what he said. At the very least, he, he, they should have all gotten up and, and left. Because Jesus looked at all of them and said, okay, listen, I know that you've been doing this ever since you were little, but from now on, when we gather together to celebrate this Passover, we're not going to celebrate something that happened a long time ago. Right? We're not going to celebrate the fact that many, many years ago, our ancestors, by faith, they took the blood of a lamb and they put it on the top of the door and the sides of the doorposts of their home. And when God saw that blood, he had the angel of death pass over those families and those homes. And then the very next day, our entire nation left slavery. From now on, Jesus said, whenever we gather to celebrate the Passover, I don't want you to think about that anymore. Instead, I want you to think about me. 
Now, let me tell you how offensive that was. That would be like me saying, okay, listen, I know that we were all here just a couple of weeks ago for Christmas, but I want to give you a little heads up. Because this year when we get together for Christmas Eve to celebrate Christmas Eve together, from now on, Christmas Eve isn't going to be about Jesus' birthday. From now on, it's going to be about my birthday. From now on, Christmas is going to be about Joe's birthday. Like, would you even come back? I mean, I hope not. Right? They're like, really? Jesus? We're not going to celebrate what God did delivering the nation of Israel from Egypt? We're going to celebrate you? And Jesus said, yes. Yes. Right? We're not going to celebrate that anymore. Because Jesus said, from now on, this bread is my body. And this wine is my blood. And see, they did not understand that either. And then later on, that very night, Jesus was arrested. And all those courageous men, they ran off and they lost faith. Jesus was beaten and crucified. And they give us, the gospel writers, they give us a very interesting little detail that would be absolutely irrelevant except for the fact that Jesus said, that John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who comes to lift up and carry off the sin of the whole world. They give us a very interesting little detail except for the fact that Jesus, in that upper room that evening, he he said, "From from now on, this wine is no longer wine that represents the blood of a lamb that was shed 1,500 years ago in Egypt. From now on, this wine, it is my blood, which is about to be poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sin, the sin of the whole world. And see, they didn't understand that either. The gospel writers, they give us an interesting little detail which would be completely irrelevant except for the fact that that when Jesus died, he was crucified. And see, the interesting thing about crucifixion is that when you're crucified, the way that you die is by suffocation. Right? You suffocate when you're crucified. You can Google crucifixion. The, the reason that you died was because in order to breathe, you had to push up on your legs. And so when the Romans got tired of watching people struggle, they would just come by and break their legs. And then eventually, they would suffocate. But when they came to Jesus, they discovered that he was already dead. That he had, in fact, bled to death. Interesting detail. The Lamb of God who comes to lift up and carry off the sin of the whole world. 20 years after this, the Apostle Paul, he's writing a letter to some followers of Jesus living in the city of Colossae. And in that letter, he sums up the significance of what John the Baptist predicted, what Jesus was explaining that night in that upper room, 
and what it is that the eyewitnesses to the crucifixion, what it is that they themselves experienced. And he tells us this, that Jesus forgave us all of our sin. And it's like, okay, Paul, that's interesting. Okay, but what exactly do you, do you mean by that? Because that seems kind of broad, kind of vague. And Paul says, well, let me get very, very specific because I don't want you to miss the significance of this. He says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Right, there's our word, indebtedness. See, the, the reason why, right, the, the reason why, um, why I asked the question, okay, what is it that I can do with all this stuff? The reason why you ask the question, how do I resolve my sin? How do I resolve my guilt? How do I resolve my shame? What, what do I do with this cloud that's hovering around me, with this shadow that won't leave me? The reason why you feel that way is because the Apostle Paul says, listen, it's real. It's real. You really are in debt. And not only do you owe, you owe yourself to have not done those things, you actually owe God. That's the root of your shame and your guilt. That's why some things that I've done I can laugh about, but other things that I've done, they haunt me. And see, the Apostle Paul says, I can, I, I, through Jesus, right, through Jesus, I actually have some good news for you. You have been forgiven, the Apostle Paul says, specifically he has, Jesus has canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned it, condemned us, right? He has, Jesus has nailed it. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And so if you ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, what can I do? What, what can I do to, to resolve my sin? He would say, listen, there's nothing that you're ever going to do. The only way to resolve your sin is by the blood of Jesus. Because when he died, he canceled your indebtedness, your indebtedness to God and your indebtedness to yourself. Right? So here's the good news. You don't have to forgive yourself because yourself is already forgiven. And so you can spend the rest of your life, if you want to, trying to figure out, okay, how do I resolve my sin? What do I have to do about all this stuff? I can't tell you what to do, right? That's, that's up to you. And if you want to go and you want to look for some kind of religious ritual or system that will give you advice, I mean, there's plenty of them out there. But there has only ever been in history one person who stepped up and said, okay, listen, it is not a ritual, it is not a system, it is not thinking rightly, it is me, Jesus said. I am the solution to your problem. Because what the blood of sheep and goats could not do, what your newfound discipline could not do, even what moving past your own past and your addictions and your struggles, what it could not do, Jesus said, I have done. Because I am the lamb that God has sent and I have lifted up and carried off your sin. And when I died, your debt was canceled. And so you do not have to forgive yourself because yourself has already been forgiven. And so maybe your question today, as we talk about this idea of forgiving ourselves, maybe your question is, okay, if that's all true, then what in the world do I do with all these memories that I have? Right? And see, that, in fact, is the easiest part. Because for your whole life, 
Or ever since that year in high school, or ever since that semester in college, or since the end of your first marriage, or the end of your, your, your previous career, whatever it was, ever since then, your sin has resulted in every time you think about you, you think failed, you think ashamed, you think guilty. And see, through Jesus, your Heavenly Father is inviting you to build some new mental memorials to your past. And he says, from now on, when you think about that, when you think about those people, when you think about that situation, when you see that name, right, from now on, those memories are simply a reminder of something different. They will no longer be a reminder of your failure or your guilt or your shame. Instead, from now on, they will serve and they will live forever in your life as a reminder of your Heavenly Father's grace, His mercy, His love, and His forgiveness for you. Right? And the truth is, it'll take a while. And for some of you, you will need to get away by yourselves and you're going to have to remind yourself of all this. For others of you, you may have to actually say it out loud. You might have to actually say, okay, Heavenly Father, it's true. Right? It's true, that was my sin. Heavenly Father, that's true, it was my sin. But through Jesus, you have lifted it up and you have carried it off. And so my question for you today, right, and I, I can't do this for you. No one can do this for you. You have to wrestle this to the ground for yourself. But I just simply want you to know, you don't have to try to live by carrying this around anymore, right? You, you do not have to try to earn your way out of something or earn your way through something. That's what religion asks you to do. What your Heavenly Father is asking of you is not to do something. It's simply to believe something. It's simply to trust something. That when Jesus died, he died for your sin. That means he lifted it up and he carried it up off of you. And see, listen, if God doesn't condemn you, I mean, come on. If God doesn't condemn you, right, then who in the world are you? Who in the world are you? Who in the world are you to condemn yourself? Now, there's a great big theological word that we use to talk about this whole idea. It's this word right here. It's the word atonement. Right? And on the surface, this can seem like a very complicated word, but the truth is it's, it's incredibly simple, especially when you just break it down because it simply means at one minute. At one minute. Bringing two parties together, reconciling two parties, bringing two parties together so that they have peace. And see, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the Jewish people, in fact, people from every culture and tribe all throughout our world, even some to this day, they still, they sacrifice in order to try to get atonement for their sins. And yet in this incredible reversal, God would be the one who would make the sacrifice. And he would sacrifice himself on your behalf and, and mine. And instead of demanding something from us, he would offer something to us. He would offer you peace. And he would offer you reconciliation. And he would make it so that you, so that me, a broken, sinful person, can be at one mint with a holy and righteous God. 
See, this is what is at the heart and the center of worship as a follower of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we should always remember that worship is to be a time of celebration, that worship is to remember the sacrifice that has already been made on our behalf. As followers of Jesus, we don't gather together to call God down. No, we gather together because God already came down. As followers of Jesus, worship should always be a celebration. It should be emotional. I mean, that's why we sing. It's why people write lyrics to songs in old and familiar ways and in brand new, fresh and in modern ways. The songs that say the same thing that the church has been singing and celebrating about ever since the beginning of time. It's why every single Sunday should be a celebration. It's why every Sunday should be exactly that. It should be emotional. We are celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, which means that everything that he said was true. It means that everything he taught us about God is true. It means everything that he says about eternal life is true. It means everything he has said about loving one another is true. It means everything he said about your sin is true. That he lifted it up and he carried it off of you. I want to lead you in a prayer this morning. If you would pray this with me. And you can say this to yourself. You can change the words. But I would just ask that everybody this morning that you would, and and if you struggle with these words, I would just ask that you would ask the Holy Spirit, ask God to open up your heart, that, that you could say these words and actually mean these words. Heavenly Father, I believe I believe that there is nothing that I will ever do to pay for my sin. Father, I actually need you to do that. And I believe that Jesus' death, that it did. It paid for my sin. And so I'm placing all of my trust in Jesus' death on the cross as the full payment for my sin because I believe, Jesus, that you picked up my sin and you carried it off. And Jesus, for all of us, for me, for everyone who's here, for those times when guilt and shame come crashing back into our lives, when the guilt and the shame of our own sin come crashing in, Jesus, help me to remember to simply stop and thank you for what has been done for me by you. And Jesus, I ask that for all of us, that you would hear us as we personally and silently confess our sin to you. The good news of the gospel is that what Jesus said is true. God has sent a lamb. God has sent Jesus who lifted up your sin and who has carried it off, leaving it, and not you, leaving it nailed to his cross. And so you are truly forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.